KBOO would like to give special thanks to our local community partners who've donated food for our volunteers today. Breakfast was provided by Katie O'Brien's, located in the Kearns neighborhood at 2809 Northeast Sandy Boulevard, an Irish sports pub with lounge areas and a pool table. Katie O'Brien's is open every day from 8 a.m. to 2.30 a.m. Lunch was provided by Revolution Coffeehouse, located at 1432 Southwest 6th Avenue in Portland, serving breakfast, lunch, desserts, and Mexican coffee only. Grown by Fair Trade Cooperative, of native Mayan farmers living in the highlands of Chiapas, Mexico, and Guatemala. Dinner was provided by Le Happy, located at 1011 Northwest 16th Avenue in Portland. Le Happy serves French cuisine and gourmet crepes from 5 p.m. to midnight every day with brunch on weekends. Le Happy also hosts private events. For more information on how you can support KBU, call 877-500-5266 or go to kboo.fm slash give right now. This is KBOO Portland. Coming up next on KBOO, Alternative Radio features talks by Anna Anali Afzali and L.A. Kaufman about the enduring power of protest. KBOO proudly co-sponsors the Portland Folk Music Society Concert Series, this month featuring soul, rhythm, and blues, and folk singer Chris Webster. Webster draws from many genres, sometimes backing her songs on uke or even washboard, with Nina Gerber on guitars. Gerber honed her skills accompanying folk singer Kate Wolf. She has accompanied and recorded with Carla Bonoff, Peter Rowan, Nancy Griffith, Greg Brown, and many others. The Portland Folk Music Society concert is April 19th, 7.30 p.m. at the Reedwood Friends Church on Southeast Steel Street in Portland. For more information, go to the website, kboo.fm, and click on Community Events. Part of why and how protest works is that it brings people together in real space, in real time. We put our bodies next to each other. We feel our sense of ourselves as a collectivity, which is a thing that you know happens in houses of worship all the time, where people get together. There's a power in that, a power especially, not sort of like in spite of this internet age, but especially because so many of us live so much of our lives digitally, that part of the enduring power of protest is that it brings us together speak as one in a physical space and we know from history that that matters and that the impact of that plays out over a long time that's la kaufman and this is alternative radio i'm david barsamian this edition of ar features la kaufman and anila afzali on the enduring power of protest Are marches and demonstrations just feel-good affairs? You vent some spleen, then you go home satisfied, as if you've done something worthwhile. And then, before you know it, the glow wears off. Or does the power of collective action, solidarity, and mass mobilizations have a deeper effect? The key to resistance is organization leading to sustained efforts. The danger of demonstrations is if they are not connected to movements. The former is episodic, whereas movements are enduring. The historic 1963 March on Washington for Civil Rights and the subsequent anti-Vietnam War demonstrations had a major impact. Those protests attracted hundreds of thousands. Since the Trump inauguration in January 2017, There have been more protests than during any comparable period in U.S. history. Literally millions have turned out. People are getting off of tweets and into the streets in larger and larger numbers. To discuss the enduring power of protest is L.A. Kaufman and Anila Afzali. L.A. Kaufman is a veteran organizer of mass marches and direct action protests. She's the author of How to Read a Protest, The Art of Organizing and Resistance. 
Anila Afzali, is the executive director of the American Muslim Empowerment Network at the Muslim Association of Puget Sound in Washington. She was named the 2018 American Muslim of the Year by the Council on American-Islamic Relations. They spoke at Town Hall in Seattle. First, we hear from L.A. Kaufman. I've been an organizer of various kinds for a very long time. And in particular, I've been involved in a lot of direct action organizing. That's what my first book was about. But I've also been involved in mass protest organizing. Um, And in particular, I was the mobilizing coordinator for the New York protest um, in February 15th, 2003, which still stands as it was part of what is still the largest single day of protest in world history. So many millions of people all around the world mobilized to try to stop George Bush from waging war against Iraq, that it still has not been exceeded. Um, And it also didn't work, right? We did not stop that war from happening. I went on to be the mobilizing coordinator for quite a few other major protests coordinated by um, United for Peace and Justice, including the march outside the 2004 Republican Convention in New York City, which still stands as one of the very largest protests in U.S. history. We had 800,000 people there, um, making it one of you know maybe the top five or six um, protests by size for a single event in the U.S. It also didn't work. We didn't stop George Bush from getting reelected after that march. It wasn't the only factor in trying to stop his reelection. But being part of those events, which on the one hand felt so extraordinarily powerful and successful in terms of turnout and had such questionable impact in terms of policy, haunted me for years and years. I never doubted that we were right to do it. I never doubted that we were right to try to stop the war on Iraq. And I think it's important for people to stand up and say that they don't agree with what's happening, even if they don't think they can change the course of events. I think it's important to do that for your sense of self and integrity. And I think it's important to do it because we don't always know what we accomplish when we do that. We don't know what the long-term effects are going to be. But nonetheless, something about the particular disjuncture between the incredible response that we had in our organizing and the really small impact that we had haunted me for years and has been in the back of my mind and was in the back of my mind when I attended the Women's March in right after Donald Trump was inaugurated in 2017. When I went there, I wasn't quite sure what to expect. I'd been to so many big protests over the years that a lot of them had had kind of come to seem boring to me. You go and you march, you listen to a bunch of speakers at a rally, and then you you end up asking yourself, what did we do? What did we accomplish? Um, I haven't always felt that way about smaller protests, which are more targeted often and more focused, part of an ongoing campaign. But these big gatherings where we come together in such huge numbers, what, it, what exactly do they do? So I was really struck by the 2017 Women's March by how different it felt and by how different it seemed from any of these big gatherings I had been to over the, the decades before. This book, in looking at this march and contrasting it with the 1963 March on Washington, the one where Dr. King gave his famous I Have a Dream speech. I looked closely at those two marches and think about how protest had changed over time in order to try to get a handle on what protest does, on why and how and when it works. This book uses partly as its point of departure the signs that people used at the protests. If you look at these signs here at the 63 March, you'll see how uniform they all look, how they all have the same typeface, they all have a small number of slogans. And it turns out, as I was doing the research for this book, that this is not accidental, that this was a very, very deliberate, conscious choice. This March, most people don't realize, I didn't realize um, until I started looking closely at the history, was the first mass march in America 
we hadn't had a mass march on Washington before. There had been parades and there had been some smaller things. There had been things, of course, like the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. And there had been these kind of pageants and processions that happened that were done by groups from suffragettes to the Ku Klux Klan in Washington. But this, the mass mobilization was brand new. People were very nervous about the idea of bringing a quarter million people together in one place in Washington, D.C. And people were particularly nervous about bringing 250,000 mostly black people together in Washington, D.C. And there was a lot of racist panic about how there was sure to be rioting, there was sure to be disorder, there were going to be all of these problems. So, so the organizers, um, you know, in, including um, A. Philip Randolph and the great organizer Bayard Rustin, um, if anything, they erred on the side of too much control in order to be sure that they had a peaceful, orderly gathering that would reflect well on the civil rights movement of the time. One of the choices, the organizing choices that they made was this choice, which seems really bizarre in retrospect to control all the signs. If you've mobilized a crowd of a, of a quarter of a million or more, trust me, it's really hard to get them to all do the same thing. So the idea that they could pull this off sort of flabbergasted me. And I, and I got a, a good sense from looking in the archives of how they did it. I mean, they had this incredible force of volunteer marshals to keep the peace. And they would just go up to people and surround them and take their signs away if somebody brought their own handmade sign. Now, part of what had stood out to me at the Women's March in 2017 was that it had the very highest percentage of handmade signs I thought I had ever seen at a protest. And when you go and you look at the data about office supply sales in the run-up to the march, it's confirmed. People couldn't find any more foam core and magic markers. I mean, they were selling out all over the country. There was a way in which that drive to, for people to create their own signs and express their own view of why they were there, um, as opposed to carrying a sign that was written by some, somebody else, uh, sort of paralleled a lot of thing, other things about that mobilization that made it distinctive. That this was, in so many ways, the way these 2017 women's marches came together was so different from anything we've ever seen in the past in how they started on the internet and were a kind of just viral groundswell. There were certainly established organizations that stepped up to help and to help make them happen and to handle a lot of the kind of boring nuts and bolts stuff that people don't realize goes into making a big protest like this, anything from, you know, porta-potties to, you know, working with the mass transit to make sure that you can get everybody there. There were people who were experienced organizers who stepped up, but so much of it was new. So much of it was this kind of viral creation by women who were alarmed, disgusted, horrified by Donald Trump's ascendancy to the presidency. I, I never say his election because I do not think he was legitimately elected. And there was a, a, a way in which this, this groundswell that wasn't controlled by any organization they had a feeling on that day. There was a feeling in D.C. In theory, they had a march route, but in practice, we just flowed through the streets like water. There were so many people and we so overwhelmed any kind of volunteer infrastructure that we just took over the streets in this way that felt more like an uprising than it did like one of these staged, carefully ordered marches. It was an utterly peaceful uprising and quite an extraordinary coming together. The, the joy that we took in just seeing each other's signs was so powerful. That's L.A. Kaufman on the enduring power of protest. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can order copies of this program and the book, How to Read a Protest, The Art of Organizing and Resistance, by calling us at 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org.
This is David Barsamian of Alternative Radio asking you to support community radio KBOO Portland right now by calling 877-500-5266. That number again is 877-500-5266. Thanks very much. Well, thank you, David Barsamian. This is Tave Fashe Drake, and I'm here with... Ken Jones. Hey. Hi, Tave. Good morning. Hi. Good morning, everybody. Listen, you don't even need to call that number to get that book. You can call our number here at 877-500-5266 and get that book as a thank you gift for uh, donating to Community Radio for $60. And that book, of course, is uh, L.A. Kaufman, who's a guest on Alternative Radio today. Mm -hmm. The book is How to Read a Protest, The Art of Organizing and Resistance. And uh, David, uh, that very familiar and comforting voice of David Barsamian gave you the uh, phone number to order it through Alternative Radio. But you can become a member or renew your membership today by calling us at 877-500-5266 and... For $5 a month and stating membership, that's just $60 a year, we'll send you a copy of that book. That's right. It's like a two-for-one because you're donating to community radio. You're making a difference to not only yourself and your own listening pleasure, but for everybody in the community. And you're getting a book on top of it. And what they're talking about on today's alternative radio is the power of community the power of solidarity, and we've been here now going on 51 years, maybe 52. Oh, we started in 1968, so uh, we're somewhere around that area. We don't tell our age anymore. We're that old as a station. We've been going on here and representing the community, your community, and helping that solidarity in our community to get things done. That's exactly right. It's You are wanting to express yourself, and you're wanting to help others express themselves. And by donating to community radio, you are doing that. You're making a difference. Um, you know, there's something that really speaks to you, and you want to continue speaking. Um, you want to continue speaking. You want to be able to con continue to say what matters to you and not be censored. You want to be able to hear people give you valid information, stuff that you're not going to hear on the networks, things that you're not going to see in regular newspapers, and you're going to get it here at KBOO Portland. So call us at 877-500-5266, and $60 or one fell swoop or $5 a month will get you that book. And we'd be happy to send it to you. You could also go online at kboo.fm if you'd prefer not to talk to a human this morning. And uh -huh. I, I know I'm in that mood occasionally. <laughs> but it's a beautiful morning today. What Tavi was talking about, uh, uh, get your voices heard, it's not just supporting KBOO and uh, giving money to us. What KBOO does is it actually amplifies the voices of different diverse groups in the community. And as Tavi mentioned, a lot of these groups are not getting any play on uh, mainstream media in town, either the local networks or uh, the national networks or uh, any of the, the other media, the weeklies, uh, the Oregonian. Uh, KBOO brings you stories you won't hear anyplace else because we are independent media, and we're independent media because we're supported by you, the listener. Exactly. We're all banding together to do this. It's a, it's a really beautiful thing. And if you are the type of person who wants even more contact with people, you can come down here. And we're just at 8th um, Avenue, a little bit south of Burnside. You could even walk in and make your pledge in person if you want. Have some breakfast with us. We, we have food left over. We so. do. <laughs> and we have coffee from Grendel's as well. Um, but yes, so the book, that's How to Read a Protest, The Art of Organizing and Resistance by L.A. Kaufman. It's a hardcover book, and you can get it here for $60 or $5 a month. I know that that might be one reason you're calling, but in addition to that, be a part of this community with us. Keep this going for another 50, 51, 52 years and call us at 877-500-5266 or go online to kboo.fm. Make your donation today. We want to hear your name. We want to know what you love about community radio specifically. What was really remarkable, though, was this was only one of some 650 marches that took place around the country. To give you a sense of perspective, before those women's marches, I can't come up with many examples where there was ever a case where there were more than 200 coordinated protests on one day. Having protests coordinated around the country is a common thing. But, but before the women's marches, 
it had been kind of this ma this clunk to major cities, about the same cities that when there were civil rights uh, coordinated protests in the 60s, still had them again in the 80s and then the 90s and then up until the recent day. And this was like just an explosion that happened everywhere from the bottom up, led by women, done kind of improvisationally um, all over the country in every single congressional district. Now, from the vantage point of two years later, I think you see exactly those same qualities, for example, in the incredible get-out-the-vote mobilization that we saw for the midterms all over the country, decentralized, women-led, improvisational, bottom-up, mobilizing the kind of work that multiplies your effect. You have one vote, but if you get out the vote, you multiply the impact that you have. And it happened all over the country. Um, and a lot of it wasn't driven by the Democratic Party. It was driven either by advocacy groups or by the thousands of local resistance groups that people formed after these marches. People formed at least 6,000 local resistance groups. It's contracted somewhat in the last two years, but it's only contracted to about 5,000. And that, just to give you, you know, a numerical comparison, the Tea Party at its height had 800 to 1,000 groups. We talk so much about how powerful and influential the Tea Party was, and we right out of the gate had at least six times their numbers in terms of local groups and organizing notes. When I look at those protests, at those women's marches, I see them, but are they going to pass any legislation? There's this way in which we impose on protests this litmus test of whether or not they lead to short-term legislative change, and that's how we assess whether they had an impact or not. But that's not how change happens. If you're going to get to the point where you're creating legislative change, there's going to have been many, many other ingredients and many, many other factors along the way, some of which is protest and a lot of which is not. A lot of which is work that is less glamorous, like all the get-out-the-vote work, work that people have been doing, where they were going around you know, making phone calls, sending texts, knocking on doors. It's not glamorous. You're not with a ton of other people when you're doing it, but it's crucial. And you need something that gives you that sense of being part of something larger than yourself to keep doing it. And that's one of the things that protests do. There's many, many different kinds of protests and how um, there's a tendency to kind of collapse and, and conflate them all when people talk about protest. It was just a few days after the women's marches that we had the Muslim ban protests in airports all around the country. Um, which was another example of a real grassroots groundswell of another kind. You know, it was a crisis emergency response. It was not, contrary to some people's myths about it, it was not like a fully spontaneous event. There were long-standing immigrant rights organizers, Murad Awauda from the New York Immigration Coalition, who knew that this, this ban was coming, had planned for some kind of response, had a text network in place, had you know other forms of outreach in place, so they were ready, boom, when the moment, the crisis moment hit to, to put out a call. But anybody who's been an organizer knows like sometimes you put out a call to action and you get three people even though it's a it's a pressing urgent issue people are tired or there's something there's there's something sometimes ineffable about these moments so this was a moment of powerful groundswell of a real grassroots uprising it was on a different scale from the for the women's marches i mean it did touch every single international airport in the us and and a bunch of other airports as well there were cities with didn't have you know had airports where there would be no international flights arriving but people still wanted to make a stand so they showed up and held a protest at those airports as well in the matter of it seemed like minutes these unfolded over the course of a day there's something in in this although the numbers here i think the numbers at jfk probably never got above 5000 there's something in that, that willingness to rise up that is so precious and that is so needed. I'm going to take a minute now to read you a couple of passages from the book. So the first is about the power of protest. 
Part of the power of the women's marches was that they never even pretended to be about applying direct pressure on the new president. They were sending a different kind of signal. The trajectory of movements is long and slow and complex. Protests do sometimes force direct concessions. Smaller, sustained, targeted ones do so more effectively than mass mobilizations. But that's far from the only way they can be effective. Organizing isn't a science, it's an art. When the odds are against you, protests can shift the term of public debate or expand the sense of what's politically possible. They can motivate people on the sidelines to step up and take action. They can put an issue on the agenda or increase the urgency with which it is addressed. They introduce friction where injustice depends on the illusion of harmony. The work that protests do often can't be seen in the moment. Their effects tend to be subtle, dispersed, and catalytic. There are occasions, of course, when you're destined to lose whatever it is you're fighting for, and a protest is just a cry of frustration. But other times, the arc of history does bend towards justice, and there are magical moments when often, quite suddenly, you win. Protesting is always an act of faith, a gamble that action might spark more action, that inspiration will travel in unpredictable ways, that taking a bold public stand will set new forces in motion, that justice will prevail. Perhaps the biggest challenge that movements face is sustaining the hope that's required for people to keep taking action over time. So sometimes the most consequential way a mass protest can work is by changing the protesters themselves, giving them the taste of collective power they need to stay in the fight. The day of the Women's March in DC, there was a moment at the end of the day when the huge crowds, there weren't that many marshals relative to the number of crowds of people, were just kind of flowing around. And people were all around the White House. And I was with two very long-term direct action organizer friends of mine. I had this vision that if we had the capacity to pull together a couple of tactical teams, we could have just gotten all the women to stay. To just stay outside the White House on Donald Trump's first night there. Just, I don't know, make some noise, hang out. Wasn't imagining a blockade. It was more like just a presence. I looked back in the historical record, and there was one time in 1970 when that happened. I write about it in the book when anti-war activists after the Kent State shootings um, converged in Washington, D.C., and Nixon freaked out so much that he surrounded the White House with a ring of 60 buses to keep them away. And so I write, nothing at all like that happened on the day that Trump, after Trump took office, neither a raucous occupation like the one of 1970 or some imagined woman-led alternative Instead, as the day wore on and darkness approached in D.C., marchers started placing their homemade protest signs along the fence around the White House. First, just a few, then whole stacks of them, creating something between a collective art installation and a simulated barricade. And then the protesters went home, as protesters had done after dozens of major demonstrations before them. Some, no doubt, felt that they had now done their part, having contributed their bodies and voices to the momentous gathering. But both at the big DC march and at the hundreds of sister marches all around the country, a noteworthy number of protesters, mostly women, took the day as a call to further action. You could feel it in the determined mood of the crowd, and you could read it in the signs, an intimation of the bottom-up, women-led organizing to come. All around the country, an impressive number of those who marched were galvanized into further action, taking the sense of collective power they felt in the streets and carrying it forward. Back in their local communities, they donated money to progressive organizations and made phone calls, millions of phone calls, to their elected representatives. They joined existing groups and formed thousands of new ones. They took on the unglamorous and often invisible work required to keep those groups going. They showed up for many subsequent protests, both local and national, ensuring that every initiative by the new president was met by loud and visible opposition. They turned out in large numbers for politicians' town hall meetings, and thousands have decided to run for office. They registered people to vote and went canvassing door-to-door -door for progressive local candidates. The difference was palpable and dramatic. Movements had created big marches many times before, but this time in a way that was impossible to predict
and marvelous to observe, marching had created a movement. Thank you. I would like to introduce Anila Afzali, and I am so honored to have you here tonight. Thank you so very much, L.A. Kaufman. And thank you to all of you for being here with us for this, I think, a very relevant and timely conversation. Uh, and I want to start maybe by just asking how many of you have been involved in a protest? I expect all the hands to go up. Okay, good, good, good to see that and good to know that. Yeah, uh, I'd actually, if I can interrupt, I'd like to see how many of you had ever been to a protest before Donald Trump was elected? All right, we've got the hardcore here. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is a good audience yeah, then. <laughs> this is These wonderful. are our people. <laughs> well, because that's a very good point, because there's a lot of people who were just mobilized by the ascendancy of uh, Donald Trump. So it is, it is good to see some people who are actually veterans of protests. I've certainly been involved in a lot of protests for a while, including at the organizational level, so I know some of the challenges uh, that come with that. Uh, and I want to start maybe by asking some specific questions of you, uh, LA, and maybe we can get we can all benefit from the responses. Uh, and the first point I want to start with is something that you mentioned, which had to do with the signs, the signs in the 1963 march that were very controlled versus the women's march that was very uncontrolled. Talk to us about the pros and cons of each one of those two approaches, because I can see both, and I personally have been involved in certain protests where we really wanted to control the message, in particular because it has involve certain marginalized groups where media or others tend to demonize and use any messaging in a negative way and use it in a way to potentially hurt the communities who are out there. And I see this most importantly in uh, there was an anti-Muslim hate rally uh, that happened across the nation uh, with Act for America, the largest anti-Muslim hate group, and the messaging for that protest, the, the response, our response to the hate rally uh, was to bring together a wide diverse coalition. It was actually beautiful to see here in Seattle and across the country, but we were very particular about making sure that our signs stayed positive. We did not want people coming out and labeling everybody on the other side as racist and Islamophobes and you know using other bad words and, and things like that because we had to control the narrative because we knew as marginalized people, if a bad result comes out of that, if violence comes out of that, the, the people who are at the, uh, involved there, they can go home and get away from it. But the people who would be most impacted are, for example, the American Muslim community and other marginalized communities who would then face the consequences of the negative messaging and any sort of violence uh, that may result. So we were very particular, and I remember sort of begging all the coalition partners to say, please keep it positive. Do not turn into negative messaging. Do not turn toward violence or anything else. So I wonder if that also plays a role in the 1963 march that was, you know, a lot of uh, our black sisters and brothers versus the women's march, which was overwhelmingly white. So I'd like to hear your thoughts both on the pros and cons and whether or not there was any uh, race implications or involvement in that. Yeah, well, it's, I, I think uh, absolutely with the 63 March, um, those kinds of concerns about how, let's say, rogue messages could be interpreted and how readily they would be seized upon were certainly a concern that um, the organizers of the 63 March had. The particular specific context was 63 and there was concern about messages that were too angry or too militant because there was an awareness that that was the sentiment in some of the grassroots and that that might not play so well. It was not the image they were looking to, to project. And I think you have seen, for instance, in subsequent organizing by the Women's March organization, as opposed to the initial event that came together, a real attention to message control precisely in order to foreground the leadership of women of color and ensure that the framing of issues is intersectional. That there have been many, many other groups over time who have had reasons why they wanted to carefully frame the messages on their protests and even the way they looked. So ACT UP would be a really powerful example of that, where ACT UP developed a particular graphic style, a particular sensibility that was very aligned with their queerness, with their outrageousness, with the way that they wanted 
to speak truth to power. And they didn't like people showing up with, you know, they didn't like people like messing up the look with like a hand scrawled side, right? So, you know, so there's reasons, there's sometimes reasons that are aesthetic and are not specifically political or don't have to do with the dynamics among different elements in a, in a coalition. So it's not as if I'm putting forward controlled signs bad, uncontrolled signs good as a simple dichotomy. But what I am pointing to is something about movement building and ownership. And there is a way in which the sense of ownership over that moment that um, women had in that first Women's March where they were all, without having gotten any memo that said, bring your own signs, when they were all just moved to make their own signs, that there was something in that that was in that mood that helped shape what happened going forward. One of the things, too, is symbolism at these marches, at these protests. Uh, you know, it's very significant, for instance, to, uh, in, in certain cases, to have an American flag, especially when uh, the whole notion of patriotism uh, seems to be uh, dominated at times by one party or one side. Uh, and I personally am an ad advocate or have been an advocate of trying to reclaim that narrative of patriotism. It is one of the most patriotic things you can do to get up and protest against injustice justice, in my mind. So I see that as very patriotic. We care enough about our country that we want to make it better, that we are out there, you know, using our bodies, using our voices, using our feet, and trying to make a change. So I think the symbolism issue also plays into some of these with the language of the, and the messages of the signs. Uh, so I was just curious if you have any thoughts about some of that <clears throat> symbolism. Right. Well, there was that, that's an example in not-so-distant history when there was really intense debate over the signs, which was in the, the immigrant rights protests of 2006. I don't know if if people remember, but those um, those stand as some of the very largest protests that we've had in U.S. history, particularly down in L.A. There were these massive, the day without an immigrant, these massive walkouts, millions of people, and there was a lot of political tension around the first round of these protests. They came in a succession of waves, and the first round, a lot of people brought flags of their home countries out of just pride and connection to their their homelands those were seized upon by fox news and other right-wing outfits that means you know that they're just here for mexican pride or you know what whatever racist anti-immigrant narrative you want to have so there was a real attempt by the organizers in the subsequent ones to encourage people not to carry any flags but american flags when you make a political request like that there's going to be people who aren't comfortable with it these questions about signage end up intersecting with sometimes deep organizing conversations that people need to have and maybe don't have the time to have in the course of quickly mobilizing to respond to a crisis. Um, because as exactly as you say, I mean, the, 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 the symbolism involved has deep meaning. Absolutely. And I think actually the fact that there was a lot of American symbolism at the Muslim ban protests, that that actually really helped shape public opinion and shift public opinion, because initially people were in favor of it. There was a large percentage of people who supported uh, the ban on Muslims. And then once sort of the, the protests happened and the symbolism and recognition that this is a violation of our American values, and this goes at the core of sort of what makes us American and our <laughs> constitutional values and other values like that, that you started seeing the poll data show something different. That's Anila Afzali and L.A. Kaufman on the enduring power of protest. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can order copies of this program and the book, How to Read a Protest, The Art of Organizing and Resistance, by calling us at one 800 444 one nine seven seven. That's one eight hundred triple four one nine seven seven. Or you can order online on our website alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Of course, you're listening to Alternative Radio here on KBOO Community Radio, that book that David Barsamian was talking about, 
How to Read a Protest, The Art of Organizing and Resistance. You can get it during our spring membership drive. I'm Ken. I'm here with my friend Tave. She can tell you how to do it. You can call us. You can call us here at KBOO Portland. We're at 877-500-5266. For those of you that prefer to go online, go to kboo.fm. There's a donate button on there. And you also have an opportunity to come down here to 8th Avenue, just a little south of Burnside on the east side. Um, For $60, you can have as a thank you gift that book, How to Read a Protest, The Art of Organization and Resistance by L.A. Kaufman. It's a $60 one-time donation or $5 a month. We also have some other options. Tell them about that, Ken. For the same amount, so that's $60 a year, $5 a month, we do encourage that sustaining membership. Uh, It's uh, kind of painless at $5 a month. We Mm -hmm. could take credit card, debit card, or electronic fund transfer, EFT, from your bank. Uh, We have wonderful volunteers, very friendly and cheery volunteers here at the phones to walk you through the process. So for that $5 a month, we have, of course, the book uh, that you've been hearing about in Alternative Radio. We also have the Kabu Music Tote Bag. Uh, Music Makes the Movement is what it says. I'm kind of looking up there from the mic because it's just above my head. Beautiful black sweatshirt, uh, a t-shirt with that uh, Music Makes the Movement logo on it and you'll be the pride of uh when you go to new seasons fred meyer safeway wherever you shop whole foods some of you i guess and also we have the beanie for the same amount and that's the kabu beanie again sixty dollars a year five dollars a month the number to call 877-500-5266 or you could also go online our website is kboo.fm So what Ken's telling you about is basically you have a choice of any of those three things, a beanie, a bag, or that book uh, for your renewing gift of $5 a month or $60 one time. But one thing uh, that really makes this a special thing is that community radio is something that is for all of us. It really means community and it makes community. We're also educating the next generation of people who are going to be informed reporters, protesters, and people who are going to speak out and speak up. KBU does trainings here, and they do all sorts of educational opportunities for how to run radio. So you can go to a, like a workshop on how to um, have microphone technique. How do you use a recording field microphone? What is editing? How do you do interviewing? Um, what is your microphone technique as such that you can be heard and not have a bunch of p- popping in there. I got to take that training. (laughs) I know. So if you call 877-500-5266, that's 877-500-5266, or go to kboo.fm, make your $5 a month donation. You will be supporting those sorts of trainings for anyone and everyone in the city who is interested in taking them. Maybe you're one of them. And when Tavi talks about the future of radio, we also have a youth collective here. So they're anywhere, I think, from 9, 10 years old all the way up to high school students, so about 16, 17, eight years, 18 years old. They're trained down here. As a collective, they put programming together, and we broadcast that on KBU, and that's the next generation. So these are people growing up uh, with a kind of that progressive spirit, that independent spirit uh, that will take media forward into the future, and KBU is a big part of that. So when you donate to KBU, it's not just to hear programs like uh, David Barsamian or uh, Alternative Radio, of course, Amy Goodman's Democracy Now!, which we play twice a day on weekdays, but it's also to support the uh, community, uh, to give voice to people, different diverse groups in the community, and, as Tavi mentioned, the radio stars of the future. Exactly. 877-500-5266 and kboo.fm. It's a $5 a month. You can have that wonderful book, How to Read a Protest, The Art of Organizing and Resistance by L.A. Kaufman, or Music Makes the Movement Tote Bag, or The Black Beanie, because it's still chilly. I have my coat on right now. (laughs) Come down here and have a cup of coffee with me and and with Ken and and enjoy. Uh, We know you want to make a difference, and we're just delighted to have you listening and participating. Um, You're making a difference to people of all, I'm going to start crying, of all ages (laughs) in our community. I'm getting up there in age myself. So um, I was talking with Ray Bodwell, who's our engineer this morning. A very young man, by the he way. He is. Um, and uh, for $5 a month, you can keep people like us educated in how to do radio. A lot of us came even from audio-video backgrounds. 
uh, professionals in, in different senses, but had never worked radio before. And we learned how to do that here. Yeah, one thing that Ray and I do, uh, uh, among other things, we'll raise in the uh, air room right now, engineering our mm-hmm. show. But he and I both teach uh, Introduction to Audio Production. Nice. So that's usually the first course that uh, somebody mm-hmm. takes when they volunteer at KBU. And it's going into one of our production studios, uh, learning how to use the mic, uh, learning how to play music on a CD or an LP. We even have a cassette player in there. We don't have an 8-track, though. So, <laughs> so That's the so, only thing we don't yeah, have. That, yeah, you'll have to transfer your your uh, music to other media but that is all that all comes from your support for KBU if you give us a call at 877-500-5266 what we're asking for right now is that minimum pledge of $5 a month $60 a year and we have uh, a credit card debit card we could take it any way you like you can get that book uh, which is, <laughs> I've, I've got it written down here, Tave. Uh, how, how to read a protest, the, the art of organizing and resistance. You could get a, you could get a tote, you could get a beanie. You, heck, you could come on down in here and uh, get a hug. <laughs> All for calling 877-500-5266 or going online at kboo.fm. Thank you. I think you're also right on the point that some of this has to be conversations because there is disagreement oftentimes in the parties that come together to organize or the organizers or the organizing groups behind a lot of these sort of mass protests. So that actually gets to the second question or second big area that I wanted to explore with you, which is really this idea of in coalitions, when you're building coalitions to try to make an impact in some of these very large areas um, and you have groups from with, from with very different backgrounds and people from very different backgrounds coming together, how do you manage the differences that often arise? Uh, the differences in sort of methodology, the differences in tactics, the differences in viewpoints of messaging and symbolism and, you know, just even basic differences between different parties, but they're all trying to come together or they all care about this one issue. How do you sort of manage that? I don't know that I have a simple answer for how you do Come that. on, LA. I'm sorry, but except to underscore how crucial that work is and how that's some of, you know, when I was talking about there being all this unglamorous work of movements, that, I mean, that certainly isn't glamorous, right? <laughs> We've all been in, in meetings that, you know, um, but it, it can sometimes be some of the most enduring. Like when I look back at that anti-war work that we did in 2003 and 2004, the beginning when I was saying, well, it didn't work. I, I, obviously, I obviously think it accomplished more than, than just enabling us to feel good about ourselves in the morning afterwards because we'd, we'd taken some kind of stance. And one of the things that I think in that particular case was some of the really enduring value of the work we did was the coalition that we built in United for Peace and Justice. Before the, anti- the Iraq anti-war movement, I think it's pretty fair to say that the peace movement in this country was overwhelmingly white. Overwhelmingly. United for Peace and Justice very early on made this decision at the February 15, 2003 march. Three quarters of the speaking slots were allocated to people of color, and the, the steering committee, once we first had a formal steering committee, was 50% people of color which maybe doesn't sound that radical now, but in 2003, this was not a common practice on the left. And years later, the relationships that people built and the trust that people built slowly over time with bumps along the way and disagreements and conflict and all of that, and I think it still continues to bear fruit, but for example, behind the scenes in Ferguson, Missouri, when there was the uprising there after the police shooting of Mike Brown. Some of the ways, if you kind of know what happened behind the scenes, some of the ways that that response came together and was elevated from being just an angry initial response into an ongoing organized movement had to do with relationships that were forged on the United for Peace and Justice steering committee. That there were these cross-racial relationships built over time years before that then people could call on in this new moment of crisis. So while I don't have a simple answer for how we work it out, I mean, I do think that, that it's important to come up with structures that are containers that can allow multiplicity 
where we can have multiple political philosophies, multiple tactical preferences, multiple ways of being, and manage to work alongside each other in solidarity. I don't think we're ever, there's a, um, there's a wonderful essay by um, Bernice Johnson Reagan about coalitions from um, the Homegirls Anthology, which is a black feminist anthology from the 1980s that, that just comes to mind. And it's, it's sort of like, if, if a coalition isn't uncomfortable, it's not big enough. If you're not in coalition with people who you really kind of don't like, if you haven't expanded your um, circle widely enough, it's, it's not a big enough coalition. So I guess my response is that we, we have to like just live in that discomfort and work through it because that's, that's kind of the heart of the political work. Well, I guess some of my coalitions definitely have been big enough because <laughs> I've good, definitely good. faced some of that. <laughs> When I look at the numbers about protests under Trump, it's always staggering. I keep a spreadsheet of the numbers of people who've been cumulatively protesting under Trump on my wall because the numbers are, so, I know I'm a kind of a protest geek, but the numbers are so high. It's been between 14 and 22 million people have protested since Trump took office. There's nothing close to that in the past. And the question had been hanging over us was it going to translate into retaking institutions of power in any meaningful way? And I think it did. I mean, retaking the House is huge. Retaking the state legislatures that we took is huge. Restoring the voting rights of folks who've been convicted of crimes in Florida is huge. You know, the wins that we had are really enormous and consequential. And they are absolutely because of the way in which people dug in to this get-out-the-vote work. And then the fact, to my mind, that this work was done so autonomously of the, of the Democratic Party is like the second huge win of the night because the Democratic Party is not going to save us. And electing a Democratic House is not going to magically create a bulwark against Trump. We have seen how anemic they're, they're, they've been utterly toothless. Obviously there's some good eggs in the bunch who are going to be strong leaders no matter what, but on the whole what's going to hold them accountable is going to be us. And it's going to be our continued willingness to apply pressure by marching in the streets, by getting on the phones, by organizing in groups, by exercising pressure in all kinds of ways, but by doing it in the same spirit that we've been resisting till now, which is to say, not waiting for permission, not waiting for direction, um, you know, certainly not waiting for the Democratic Party to tell us to go pressure it to do something real, because that ain't yeah. gonna happen but by continuing to stand strongly for these values that we hold dear and that are being violated every single day under this presidency. That was L.A. Kaufman, and before her, you heard Anila Afzali on the enduring power of protest. They spoke in Seattle. L.A. Kaufman is a veteran organizer of mass marches and direct action protests. She's the author of How to Read a Protest, The Art of Organizing and Resistance. Anila Afzali is the executive director of the American Muslim Empowerment Network at the Muslim Association of Puget Sound in Washington. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and part of the nonprofit media organization Rise Up. We are supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature progressive voices rarely heard in the media, such as Leilani Farha, Dar Jamel, Kali Akuno, Tariq Ali, Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz, and Ilan Pape. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. 
To place a credit card order for CDs, MP3s, or written transcripts of today's program, L.A. Kaufman and Anila Afzali on the Enduring Power of Protest, and the book, How to Read a Protest, The Art of Organizing and Resistance, just give us a call at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that number is 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order on our website, alternativeradio.org. Special thanks to Jonathan Shipley and Tom Worrell. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening indeed, but don't call that number that David told you about. Call us here at 877-500-5266. Call us at KBOO Portland or go to KBOO.FM. Make your $5 a month donation or one-time $60 donation to receive some special thank you gifts. We have totes, we have beanies, and we also have that book that they've been talking about. How to Read a Protest, The Art of Organizing and Resistance. So that's $5 a month, $60 one time, and it's yours. Call us, 877-500-5266. You know, what uh, Ray and I, uh, Tave, we were talking about, uh, we both do training here at KBOO. That's right. So we talked about that a little, our last, last pledge break. That's how all of us start. We take the training. It's all free when you come down to KBOO. So that's part of what you pay for as members. You can come down here. You could uh, learn how to do radio. And by radio, I also mean podcasts, which are a huge medium right now. There's approaching one million podcasts, I think, in the universe, and it's expanding all the time exponentially. You can learn all that at KBOO. We teach you audio production. We could teach you digital editing. Tavi went into some of the other courses, uh, uh, using a mic, interviewing, uh, writing for the news, uh, just going out and reporting. We'll show you how to use a, a, a digital recorder. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can go out to protests. You can go out to meetings, conferences, record, turn that into a program, and KBOO's a perfect place to play stuff like that. You won't find that with most media. <laughs> it's won't. not really citizen involved. But KBOO's like that, and we've been like that for over 50 years now. Thanks to members like you. It's run about 80% of our operating budget comes from our members. So if you're not currently a member, or if it's time to renew your membership, perfect time during our spring membership drive. We've got a few days left. 877-500-5266. Yeah, the number again is 877-500-5266. Just pick up the phone and call. We have some wonderful people here answering the phone. They'll chat you up and then they'll say, hello, Doug from Mount Hood. What do you like about KBU? And Doug called in earlier and said he loved all of the programming and he'd like to have a tote. The music makes the movement tote bag. Special to my heart because I'm also a musician. And then um, Ariadna called and she selected a beanie. So both of them, thank you so much. Uh, Ariadna's from St. Paul, Oregon. And they chose something different, each of them from one another. Shows the diversity of people and what they like out there and the type of programming you are going to continue to make possible by calling us here at KBOO, 877-500-5266 for $5 a month or a one-time $60 donation. Renew, reuse, and recycle. And that number again is 877-500-5266. We'd love to hear from you or go online at kboo.fm. KBOO would like to give special thanks to our local community partners who've donated food for our volunteers today. Breakfast was provided by Katie O'Brien's, located in the Kearns neighborhood at 2809 Northeast Sandy Boulevard, an Irish sports pub with lounge areas and a pool table. Katie O'Brien's is open every day from 8 a.m. to 2.30 a.m. Lunch was provided by Revolution Coffee House, located at 1432 Southwest 6th Avenue in Portland, serving breakfast, lunch, desserts, and Mexican coffee only. Grown by Fair Trade Cooperative, of native Mayan farmers living in the highlands of Chiapas, Mexico, and Guatemala. Dinner was provided by Le Happy, located at 1011 Northwest 16th Avenue in Portland. Le Happy serves French cuisine and gourmet crepes from 5 p.m. to midnight every day with brunch on weekends. Le Happy also hosts private events. For more information on how you can support KBOO, call 877-500-5266 or go to kboo.fm give right now. 
Cebu Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of Cebu in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certifications requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about Cebu Community Radio's open meeting policy is available by calling the station at 503-231-8032. Meetings will be held at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue, Portland, Oregon, unless otherwise noted. The events committee meets the third Thursday of each month at 6 p.m. Please call 503-231-8032 to verify if a meeting is being held. This is KBOO Portland. Coming up next is Flashpoints with Dennis Bernstein. Dennis celebrates KPFA's 70th birthday. Then at 11, it's Peace, Love, and Soup. Brian and Tave discuss Earth Soup in honor of Earth Day. All of these KBOO programs are made possible by member support. Please support our spring membership drive by becoming a member. Just give us a call at 877-500-5266 or go to kboo.fm and click on the Donate button. Studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California. This is Flashpoints. I'm Dennis Bernstein. Today on the show, it's a special edition: the KPFA 70th birthday anniversary celebration with Pulitzer Prize-winning author Alice Walker. She's a good friend to this station. All this coming up straight ahead on Flashpoints. Stay tuned. Listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein, and we are honored to have in the studio with us Alice Walker. Let me just say a few things about her. Alice Walker is many things to many people. To some, 